Thank you for listening to Time Off. If you haven't heard of our movement yet, I'm going to give you a gist of it. Today we've seen more cases of burnout in people who are overworked and overwhelmed. And Time Off is the study of how to combat that. Look, many of us are working hard. But the question is, is all that hard work actually working? We all have a work ethic, and it's important to have one to execute on projects and the change we seek to make. But is your work ethic matched up well with a rest ethic? Meaning, do you take intentional rest? Are you disciplined about it? Did you know that intentional rest has many benefits outside of relieving tension? That rest is a crucial part of the creative process. And don't take my word for it. Many people throughout history have stepped away from work to engage in hobbies, leisure, and simple things like an intentional walk in nature to come up with their best ideas, realizations, and important reflections. The point is, your time off is as crucial as your time on. And this podcast discusses the many forms of time off and how you might improve your own rest ethic. We speak with people about how their rest ethic allows them to create better work and live more interesting lives. And we also have been writing a book about this topic, and it'll come out in the year 2020. To find out more about the podcast and the book, you can go to timeoffbook.com. That's timeoffbook.com. Okay, on this episode, we are going to talk about quantum computing. Well, kind of. (laughs) Terry Rudolph is a quantum physicist. And he's taught at the Department of Physics in Imperial College, London, and is now leading a startup in the Bay Area that's focused on quantum computing. He wrote the awesome book, Q is for Quantum. And Q is for Quantum teaches a theory at the forefront of modern physics, but to an audience that you don't need to be a rocket rocket scientist to understand his book. If you have a basic understanding of arithmetic, you can understand the bleeding edge of quantum computing thanks to Terry's book. But the reason we have Terry on the episode today is that he's leveraged interesting offsites throughout his career and other time off strategies to foster the space and time for solving incredibly challenging physics problems. And he's not alone. This has been done with scientists throughout history. We talk about how Terry is leveraging different forms of time off to do better work. I appreciate your attention and thanks for listening. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to to chat. Max has said a lot about you. And Max did one of, you know, him and I are splitting. Well, we're writing the book together, but we to to tackle that, we've been splitting up the the profiles of the book. We have mm-hmm. a lot of profiles and I really enjoyed reading the profile that he's put together for you. It's now my turn uh, <laughs> to edit it. So in a, in a weird way, oh, I, kind of, I know, I know you through, through the profile he wrote, uh, but mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a real honor to, to, to chat. So I, I really appreciate you making the time to do it. No problem. No problem. Awesome. Well, uh, I try to keep it casual cause I, I find that, that those conversations sound the best instead of anything too sure. rigid and formal. If you're okay with that, I'll just sort of yeah, dive sure. in. Cool. You know, it's Monday. I I was just reflecting on on my weekend, but that's probably not as cool as your weekend. And I'd like to know uh, this this past weekend, how did you how did you spend your time? 
this past weekend actually was primarily getting organized for uh, Burning Man, which I'm going to this year, the festival. And it's in a couple of weeks' time, but I'm popping over to the UK for a few days in the middle, and so I've got to come back, land, and then sort of drive there. So most of the weekend was on Amazon ordering equipment, <laughs> just getting myself sort of, you know, making a list of every single thing I got to take. I don't know how much, I don't know if you've ever been to Burning Man, but it actually takes a lot more. It's a lot of effort. Human beings yeah, come in from nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do a lot of camping anyway, so you know, I kind of have some stuff, but it's a completely different scale of just getting yeah. ready. If you don't mind me asking, what are you seeking by by going to Burning Man? Like, what are you what are you hoping to get out of it, Terry? Uh, so I've been once before, um, and that time I was not in a camp, and I sort of had to take all my stuff. I sort of walked in camp, and it was a couple of years ago. the The weather was the worst they basically ever had with dust storms and stuff, and it was actually quite tough to survive. <laughs> and I enjoyed it, but, you know, I sort of realized like, man, I would enjoy this a heck of a lot more, partly if the weather was better and partly if I was in a camp where you can share a lot of, um, just a lot of the load. So I, I resolved that I would not go back unless, you know, a camp with people that I, I would be happy to be in that situation for a week with um, was available. And so uh, that didn't happen the last few years but then this year uh, that did happen and my partner who has never been has always been a bit jealous about the fact that i have been and so it seemed like a kind of good opportunity to go and get kind of let's say a, a slightly slightly less uh, survivalist version of burning man is my hope for this <laughs> for this time and it's an interesting place i don't know how much time you've ever spent in the valley or in San Francisco, but there's a lot of tech people in here. And then at Burning Man, there is a lot of tech people, but people are way more just open to talking to random people. Whereas here, you know, when, when you're sort of in civilization, if you want to call the valley civilized, it's like, it's very closed off. So you don't, you don't really, you know, even just the tank people at Burning Man are sort of more interesting than they are when you see them in a Palo Alto coffee shop. Yeah. And there's a lot of non, like, yeah. I mean, my, my, one of my favorite experiences of, of my last Burning Man was the people um, camping opposite me who uh, were way better organized than me. They had a better wind shelter and stuff. And, and they sort of helped me out. One of the, the, the guy was a truck driver, like he, you know, had spent his life trucking. And it turned out he was really good at logic puzzles, and yet he had never done logic puzzles before. And he didn't even really know what the concept of the puzzle was it's at the beginning, but we were sort of hunkered down in this storm and dust storm. And, uh, you know, somehow we started doing logic puzzles and this guy like it was brilliant better than any phd students i've ever had at that kind of thing so wow. better than I, you know and i was just like so weird to me you know, this is just an experience i would never have had out there in the real world <laughs> yeah i feel like 
that is the the theme I, I see at these gatherings. Like Bernie Man is, I mean, you're a technologist. I've spent my career mainly as a software designer, so within technology as well. And I noticed that in those occasions, I'm 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 reminded that human beings are the most advanced computer that I can wrap my mind around in terms of an, an analogy. It's just you know that that individual, that truck driver you know, his, his default library, if you will, he just has an innate ability to deal with those logic puzzles. Whereas someone else has a weird innate ability to just tell a story without even thinking about it, you know, and, and those interactions, when you get back to the rawness of humanity and us looking at each other in the eyes, in the elements, it's in our favor to coordinate and help each other because it's, it's harsh out there in mother nature. You know, in, in those moments you tap into a very deep intelligence that's quite rewarding. Yeah, yeah. And 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 just the fact that in our regular society, everything is conditioned to us, particularly in a big city, ignoring the people around us, mm. um, and and sort of you know, you, you, you'll sit on the Caltrain, and even if you see the same people every day or whatever, you, you know, you're still not going to talk to them. Like everything is sets barriers because there's in some sense too many people we we once we moved out of the trees even in a small village you know the, the monkeys don't kind of talk to each other as much as they should mm. and so but burning man is very like even though it's now it is quite big the the whole spirit of the thing is just you know, interacting mm-hmm. with anyone and everyone you know? mm-hmm. yeah so one thing I'd like to understand is if if it was the truck driver or maybe someone in a coffee shop in Palo Alto, regardless, nowadays when, when you meet somebody and then they approach you with the typical, so Terry, what do you, what do you do? How do you typically mm-hmm. answer that question? Strongly dependent on whether I think <laughs> an undercover cop from, or from the NSA or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean my responses sort of range from oh, i'm a scientist or a physicist or uh you know i work in a hardware company mm. that's the sort of thing i respond in the valley um, well maybe a better question is and this is a question i like to ask people when i'm when i'm first interacting with them like what do you what are you currently the most interested in? You know, what, what's occupying your the deepest parts of, of, of your thinking? So the last couple of years, I've been very focused on, on the methods for building a quantum computer using photons. That's what my company is doing. We have you know, a large number of engineers actually building stuff and so I transitioned from, in my academic life, I was doing a sort of wide variety of quantum types of things, but you know, they ranged very much from foundations of quantum mechanics to quantum thermodynamics and so on, to zoning in on, let me understand the details from, from the bottom to the top of what it's gonna take to build this quantum computer. And it's fun and it's also been, you know, I'm 
now in my mid forties and when you've been successful in academia, essentially what happens is you get, you get to a point where actually your success is coming through your students, not through your own work because you spend so much of your time teaching so much of your time advising PhD students that they're the ones with the time to actually sit and think and do stuff. Mm. And coming to the company, you know, sort of condition of me coming was this, that I'm going to have, you know, large blocks of time as in multi days a week of actually just doing science. But you, but you know, it's easy to think, well, maybe I'm just not capable of it anymore. You know, the young, young folks are the ones that are, uh, uh, you know, they've got the energy and they're smarter and so on. But the last few years has sort of rebuilt my confidence that I can actually make uh, genuine sort of intellectual breakthroughs mm. in what we're doing. And I, you know, I have now, of course, a team of like 20 people also thinking about just the theoretical side like I am, but it's a different, it's a different mode to being in academia. Like they're all, you know, my equals and we're all like helping each other push forward on it. Mm. And, you know, but I've, I, I can, I sort of feel that my own contributions are strong. And so, yeah, it's, a, I've just sort of the last few years have transitioned into sort of very different intellectual mode as it were. So you've also written some literature and material to help people wrap their minds around the significance and the current understanding of quantum computing. Do you mind describing quantum computing in a, in a way for general listeners to get excited about it? The first thing you really have to do is release yourself from the notion that more computing power is what makes a quantum computer better and exciting and interesting. At some level, it's a secondary thing if you step back. Like, why, why is computing, classical computing, standard regular computing, mm -hmm. such an interesting thing just from a pure philosophical and mathematical um, perspective? It's because what it captured was the way that a human actually does uh, makes progress as a mathematician thinks the process by which they uh, sort of generate mathematical proofs and so on. That's what Turing was thinking about when he, when he sort of came up with this notion of a universal computing machine. Mm. And I think you, you really have to appreciate that aspect of it first. You know, Turing sat there thinking what, you know, there were no computers. He sat there thinking, what is it that I do as a mathematician when I, when I explore mathematical structures, the foundations of mathematics and so on? Well, I take a piece of paper, I can divide it up into squares, I draw symbols in those squares and I manipulate them. And so he came up with this amazingly abstract but incredibly powerful uh, description of, of a process of logical thinking and deduction that can be done by a machine. And the theory of, of universal classical computation and as, as sort of deeply tied as it is with 
you know, the deep problems of logic, of classical logic and, and things like Gödel's theorem and so on, are what makes computing exciting as an intellectual endeavor. Mm -hmm. okay. There are things that, that then go past that. You can then, you say like, you know, can you formalize processes of thinking or can you formalize intelligence? Can you, uh, you know, the whole theory of computational complexity I find incredibly interesting. Um, but at its deepest level is this connection between sort of formal logic and logical ways of, of thinking about the world and classical computing. And the exciting thing about quantum computing is it changes that. It's not the stuff you're going to do with the computer. It's the fact that it has implications all the way back, right back to the very foundations of classical computing, as tied as they are to the foundations of how we think. And I think, you know, Turing really did capture something about that, that was universal and that really captures something about both the, the power and the limitations of human thinking. Um, I'm a strong believer that we will have strong AI one day. I don't think in my lifetime, but I don't see any reason at all why we're particularly special. Um, so once you, you know, if you come at, at just what, are, what is computing about from that perspective, you, you, you don't look on it as, oh, what does it do for us? Yeah, it gives us Minecraft and it, you know, helps us, you know, build stuff. But really what it does is it captures something deep about the world. Mm. And quantum computing can be understood. And this was why I really, I really tried to, to make this um, a key part of my book uh, of Cures for Quantum. It can be understood as just adding, in some sense, one extra logical structure to the classical framework that we already have, you know, that originated with Turing. So you don't have to think of it as it's like, oh, throw out all of the classical computation and start again. You can go back to it and say, really, I start with a structure that's, that's identical to the classical computers. It has the same kind of circuits and gates and bits and so on. But then I add in one new uh, gate, one new element that processes information in a way that immediately it becomes apparent, contradicts our beliefs that are sort of built into us about how the world works and how logic should, you know, what, what's a logical description of what's going on in the world. And the power of quantum computing is you say, okay, I, let me accept that this extra logical element works, this extra gate, as it were. I throw it into the mix. Now what can I do with it? And quantum computing is just to sh is, is based around the fact that, yeah, there are some problems that you can solve by having this like modified quantum logic, if you want to call it that. Um, you can solve them much faster in the sense of many fewer gains mm. um, by having this extra logical element. And that's why there's a lot of excitement about it, sort of just from a pure technology point of view. We, will, we can use these 
things to you know solve problems of material science or chemistry or whatever it is much faster but i think every person who um has appreciated you know at a fundamental level why classical computing is interesting should also try and appreciate why quantum computing is is interesting irrespective of how long it takes us to actually build a useful quantum computer in terms of i like how you frame it that way it made me think well what questions still remain that we're trying to find an answer for that this new fundamental shift in capability of logic could help us answer are there and there's many of those questions that we're still seeking answers to are there any in particular just the questions themselves that you're hoping in, through your contributions and your colleagues' contributions to unlock that new logic capability. The, some of the questions you, you hope in our lifetime we're able to. Yeah, I, I can tell you this. I mean, the sorts of questions that people throw out there in that vein are things like um, AI, you know, Roger Penrose and, and many other people have speculated that the, the sort of classical Turing machine model of the brain uh, doesn't capture everything, that there must be quantum effects. And so a quantum computer is the sort of cleanest and purest way of understanding what extra um, things a quantum effect brings to the party. But, you know, to be honest, I'm pretty skeptical of that kind of stuff. I don't think uh, quantum computing is going to help us with, mm. with that side of things i do think there's still very deep so, so one of the things that as you try and understand like where does this extra power of quantum computing come from it seems to be very tied to features of the quantum world that you know a good way of saying it is they just frankly don't care about space and time we care about space and time. Our whole narrative of the world is, is couched in terms of events that take place in space and time. And, and even the events that we sort of hypothetical events and stories we tell ourselves about counterfactually about what could have been different and so on. For the quantum systems in certain special circumstances, it's, it's clear that they don't care about that. Like they somehow coordinate themselves um, irrespective of, of what we would think of as obvious space-time constraints. Mm. And so as a physicist, I, 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 you know, I hope that we obtain a deeper understanding of that and, and you know, quite where that might go, I don't know. But um, I sort of feel like you know, there's, there's a hope of, at some level, um, removing our... So, you know, the, the history of science, you can say, uh, at different steps, we, we want to remove ourselves from, from the picture and, and, and how uh, our view of the world changes when we say, like, actually, we're not that important and that maybe the way I've been trying to interpret the world is just based on, on the fact that I'm a monkey, that sees things at a particular scale and, and sees things that are fairly important. And this sort of Copernican thing where you say like, look, we're not that important. 
somehow the quantum systems think space and time is not that important. So, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe space and time themselves are just, just something that helps me find bananas and other names. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It reminds me of, I remember seeing a, a video that helped uh, describe through a visual animation, what 10, 10 dimensions uh, would be like. And I remember yeah. where it talks about, you know, we we're stuck in this, uh, 3d concept and and you know the fourth dimension being our our perception of time but when they when they mentioned that if you could imagine being a a, a comic character or a king and queen on a card and you're in, you're in, you're you're only in the second dimension hmm. being able to perceive yourself in the third it's like you can't really wrap your mind around it but in the in the illustration they were able to say well look here's how this would be like for them to see themselves in that. Therefore, you throughout your whole life, right? If you looked in a mirror, you you don't really see yourself aging in in transition. You see, you know, these milestones throughout five years, ten years. You look at photos and you can see yourself aging. But if we were just like that flatlander taken from the the king from the playing card, shown mm -hmm. as a 3D character, it'd be like us being taken out looking at our entire life as this one string sort of a of a like when you wave your hands it would be like a, a a brush stroke and to me like when you're telling me the way you're elaborating on that i'm imagining you know maybe we are able to find ways that allow us to perceive what's beyond quote this dimension and that's just a word we've created to describe this construct but um yeah. wow i haven't i haven't thought of it that way so let's zoom out a bit you know you're you're working mm -hmm. on some pretty <laughs> bleeding edge science but i i remember uh researching that you and, and some others that are working in this space get together to to workshop ideas and in the past you've done some of these quantum workshops in in foreign countries <laughs> mm. um can you talk to me about those gatherings and, and, and what's the, what's the purpose of those? Um, yeah. So, uh, the, I guess the, the most interesting one, certainly the only one that I really ran myself is I've run a couple of workshops in Malawi, which is country I grew up in as a child mm. and that I visit every couple of years. And, you know, part of it was just, I go there and, I really love the place. It's not a, it's not a high tourist traffic destination. And I talked about it with colleagues over the years. And, and one of my colleagues just said, look, why don't you just organize a workshop there? And, you know, we'll come. So eventually I did actually do that. It's a, it's a strange place to, to run a workshop. Obviously we didn't have a conference center. We didn't have uh, any of the standard, kinds of things but in many ways I think that added a lot to it so we you know everyone flew in to Malawi they paid for themselves um, and we then had a bunch of cars of varying varying quality let's say <laughs> but we drove around the country and you know we spent pretty much every night in a different location but we, uh, so we traveled, we saw a lot of, of, of just the countryside, met people, went to, to cities, went to villages, went out into 
the bush out to Lake Malawi, which is incredibly beautiful. We went up hiking up mountains, but we uh, had a portable whiteboard and we gave talks you know, in just all these kind of crazy exotic locations. Wow. And everyone sort of, and it was good because you couldn't bring your laptop just for security reasons. No one had their laptop. Everyone had to give a talk that was just, you know, on a whiteboard, which is actually, it's, it's good to force yourself to do that every now and again. It makes you a more efficient communicator. Mm. And, and then just the nature of Africa, as I said, the cars were of varying quality, things broke down. Uh, you can never really stick to a schedule no matter what because it's Africa and stuff just happens. And so there were many hours, you know, people just sitting on the side of a road in a game park kind of you know, worried about elephants, but getting to talk about physics. You know? <laughs> so there was a lot of discussions that just happened because, you know, you're sort of in this situation where time is not really that important in Africa and you kind of try and have a loose schedule and you try and get stuff done. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a much more open kind of ended interaction with your colleagues. And then I think also just, you know, when you're interacting with colleagues at some, you know, Baltimore convention center or something, you're not, you're not close to them because you're not struggling to survive. <laughs> but in Malawi, you are, right? Like everyone is sort of also having to coordinate and collaborate, not just on the intellectual stuff, but on, you know, dealing with whatever it is, insects or clean water or whatever, it, you know, uh, how to sleep or whatever it is. People are sort of having to coordinate just on the basics of life. And... I think that also adds something to the to that type of workshop environment that I'd never experienced before and, and you know, certainly haven't experienced since. Do you think it's because of that foreign environment compared to a the same old boardroom setting with a, a whiteboard and a video conference software and PowerPoints that, that it that environment invites more of a open mind, a beginner's mind. Like what about those off sites? If you've put any thought into it, I like the survival element that you just mentioned, Terry, but <laughs> is there some other benefits that maybe, maybe people don't need to go to the same extremes, but if they're, if they're trying to innovate and ideate, I'm, I'm trying to get from you. If you see any other benefits of a, of a team doing uh, just outside of the typical environment. Yeah, I mean, we do in in what I'm doing now. In, we have an architecture team, which is about 20 theoretical physicists. You know, so the company, we have maybe 60-odd engineers, 20-odd physicists, something like that. And all the different teams are encouraged to do off-sites at you know, multiple times during the year. We also do some kind of large company-wide ones as well. And, you know, these things sort of have a place and they, I think they do require kind of planning in terms of, of setting uh, the boundaries on, like, you know, what is the purpose? Technical people get frustrated if, if you take them to off-sites without like some sort of clear vision mm -hmm. or, you know, what are we trying to do with this off-site? 
So, so you need, I, I think it can be difficult to, to make them really good and productive. And we learned after our first few, I think, better ways of doing that. But you don't want to do, you, you want them to be a creative, problem solving, facing challenges, creative type thinking um, events, but they're not, you, they, you know, they, you just can't make them kind of intellectual free for alls. The workshops, academic workshops are a little bit different. They're more likely to be intellectual free for alls because you know, people come with, people come in already with a whole bunch of like things that they're particularly interested in and then they're you know, trying to grab other people and get them interested in it. So, yeah, I see them as sort of different, different types of things which, which are important, but, you know, there's like, there's no uh, one, one way to solve mm-hmm. all the problems of, of, of getting complicated multi-person <laughs> projects and progress done. You know, like sure. But sometimes a environment change, especially paired with, to your point, uh, an intention, uh, yeah. can be a refreshing. So, so we we always do it somewhere which is different, like up in up in the redwoods or you know down oh. by the coast, or you know try and do it somewhere where the actual yeah people kind of want to be there just because it's like a physically beautiful place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that definitely sets the mood as it were so you're a runner is that Mm. is that accurate i mean i wouldn't call myself a a runner who like really (laughs) loves running (laughs) (laughs) i run because it's you know yeah i've got to do something (laughs) sure what is running for you is it a physical practice a a mental practice a, a bit of both like what benefit do you get from your runs i really have it's it's really bimodal so i do i do some runs which are really focused on you know improving as a runner getting faster getting a better time or maybe i go do interval training or whatever it is those are, are runs which uh, it's just like I'm focused on my body and on, you know, what target I'm trying to hit and so on. They're, so they're not relaxing in the sense of, you know, you're exhausted (laughs) at the end of it, but they're also distracting in the sense that you can't, you can't think about anything else when you're doing that kind of run. You know, you you can't like, you, you can't, be worried about what's going on at work or you, you know you in some sense you just can't be stressed or because you, you like i'm trying to run you know and hit a particular target and if you set the target stringently enough all you can think about is what is my current pace what is my breathing uh you know like am i am i going to hit it or not do i need to speed up or slow down and so on so then that, that mode of running, um, which I would say I do you know, once or twice a week, is very different to a far more kind of like running is just uh, kind of happening while I think about stuff. 
So, you know, this is where I run, say, much further and much slower, like essentially at a pace that, that doesn't bother me at all, that I, can, I could run almost indefinitely at that pace. And then that type of running is, is quite different because you're, you do have the ability to think about stuff. And quite often I'll save up things to think about during such a run. I'll be like, oh, okay, I'll think about that next, you know, when I'm running. And the, the power of, of being on a run when you like a very sort of slow, uh, long run is just that you don't have the computer, you don't have paper, you don't have a pen. You know, you really have to just deal with stuff completely in your mind. And so when I do that, which I also do a couple of times a week, it, it's almost like a completely different, I mean, they're both running, but they, they're just, it's a completely different, mm -hmm. different type of, uh, let's say, relaxing endeavor. <laughs> um, what I like about it, though, is when, as you're describing it, I mean, I, I, I see the value in it, but I can imagine other people being like, okay, wait, this is a, like a very talented physicist who is running a pretty bleeding edge tech company. And like you on a long jog, some would be like, why is he, why is he wasting his time? Whereas like that is its own form of work, like in intellectual work. Do you, do you agree that sometimes that is? Yeah, yeah. It, it it can be, and it can be extremely productive um, because, as I said, like you're, you're sort of trapped now, you know. It's like I'm, I'm running for the next two hours. Well, you know, I can't, <laughs> I don't, I can't send an email. I can't, like, look something up on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. So I need to, to deal with everything purely in my mind, get it organized, work, you know come up with things very occasionally uh, I'll get frustrated that I don't have a pen and paper and I've considered carrying a very small notebook <laughs> with <laughs> me on the run. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't do it just because I, yeah, I think it is actually, it's good mental practice to, yeah. to be able to sort of remember these things. What are the main differences between deep work and busy work? that you've noticed like i i have friends in the in the bay area that sometimes i i observe that i mean they are doing a lot on their computer and i'm blown away at their ability to jump from one task to the other and their context switching seems to be at another level than mine but then i'll sit there and kind of ask them like well what did you end up doing today and they they talk about a lot of tiny small wins uh yeah. versus other days they may have had a massive breakthrough I guess, have you, do you notice a difference between busy work and, and deep work in, in your circles? And what is it? Yeah, I mean, we, in fact, as a company, we have two half days that are uh, blocked out for deep, they're called deep work. And wow. you're not allowed to schedule meetings, which just drives the EAs nuts. But like, there's no, <laughs> no meetings and the program managers and stuff, they, they can't stand it. But like, there's nothing, you know, that's deep work time. I, you know, I certainly get a lot more deep work than just those two half days done, partly because I get up very early in the morning, uh, partly because 
you know, I also try and arrange my schedule to, to block off whole days that just I take no meetings or do nothing. But that's a fairly privileged position to be in. Certainly most people in the company can't do that. I think within deep work, there's still many different levels of stuff that you can do or stuff that you can hope to get done in such a time period. So as I said, like with running, I'll often sort of save up things to think about. Uh, I'll do the same sort of for deep work, which will be like, let's say a more kind of creative deep work. So these are things that are maybe more sort of fringe ideas or things that are, uh, you know, I don't really know how they're going to pan out or whether they'll be useful or significant, but they, they're not well formed enough for me to, to make immediate progress on. And so that type of kind of, let's say exploratory deep work, I need essentially very, um, I need to be able to get in a zone where I don't have to think about, oh, I I only have two hours now for this type of deep work. Mm -hmm. I need to have a very open-ended, like I really need to not have a meeting at all for the rest of the day kind of thing because I can't, I need to get, you know, into into a point, like you can't force, you can't force progress and creative progress to happen and you can't say like, all right, I'm going to have a good idea in the next hour. <laughs> you know, it's just not how it works. So that's the type of deep work that I will, that I, that I essentially plan for by making sure I have blocks of time where I don't have any meetings for the whole rest of the day, at least for, you know, let's say six to eight or 10 hours or something mm-hmm. block. And then, you know, maybe I'll go and, and work somewhere different from home or a coffee shop or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there is also deep work where you, you're like, okay, now this is going to be a really tricky piece of code to write and I need to bring together a bunch of math and stuff I don't really understand about coding or whatever to, to get it to work. And you're not going to do that while you're sitting also dealing with you know meetings and answering people and so on. So you, you can have the sort of deep work where you've got like, you know that you need very uninterrupted concentration to solve something that you know that you can do, but it's just that it's like that, you know, you've got to be able to do it uninterrupted. So for me, that kind of deep work, I can normally judge, right? I need two hours for that or four hours for that. So then that I will do, you know, I can even do in the office by just putting my headphones on and we have a very strict, no interrupting someone with their headphones on kind of rule. And, it's a different type of immersion in a problem, I guess. Um, and both of them I would call deep work. Yeah, that's a great differentiation. I've been thinking a lot about in this age of computational abundance and more and more automation and abstraction layers of tools that are allowing people to build products faster, that we're increasingly living in a in a knowledge economy and you know, the value of us human beings is the ability to produce intellectual property and design new solutions to leverage a lot of these new tools. And therefore, you know, a part of our hypothesis is that just as you've talked about in your practice, fostering different forms of time off so that you can 
have some breakthrough ideas to then mm. contribute back to the to knowledge to the knowledge economy is a is a trend that we're noticing. But I'd like in in your perspective, Terry, what trends are you seeing in just work in in general and and where do you think we may be going in terms of how we work? I'm not someone who's very experienced (laughs) with different modes or types of work. You know, like I, until a couple of years ago, I'd never left college. I I was a student and then, then I did a PhD and then I stayed as a postdoc and stayed in academia. And I think that's a very different, um, I I think the way academia is going is like a, a completely different kind of question as you know versus let's say and and then the way academia goes is always like yeah it can be many years behind in terms of actual structures or efficient work mm-hmm. um my so my experience let's say in the real working world is extremely limited it's you know a couple of years in a company of which i was a founder and so i, I you know <laughs> had a strong input in in trying to make the environment the type of environment that was useful for me but i do interact quite a lot with people who who think hard about um the way we as humans are going to progress in the next 20 to 30 years i'd encourage you to look at the kinds of things michael nielsen thinks about for example where which are you know like what what are the next generation of tools going to do in order to make us uh, better and more creative thinkers. Um, and he, at Y Combinator Research, they do very interesting things on, on these kinds of things. But I think the, there's a few um, trends that I think can be positive. I think the, the notion of people working from home doesn't work for everyone and it doesn't work, I, I, I don't think, you know, for the majority of people, I don't think it would work all of the time. But I think that, you know, being able to to give people a lot more flexibility in where they work from and, and that sort of just the functional way in which they work is a good thing. There's now companies which, you know, don't have any offices at all. doesn't really work for a hardware technology company, but certainly can work for a software one. I, I think more recognition around the fact that that our diversity is extremely large and that the stand you know that the the structures that were put in place for for like let's say office type work since the industrial revolution were very homogenous and suited you know to some small fraction of the population and for many people, that was not a good way of getting uh, the best out of them. And so as we understand better, you know, already we understand better about things like how people think about uh, even a mathematical problem in completely different ways. So the, the more we understand about that kind of uh, the differences in the way people think and the way people work best and so on, I think our ability to have people being productive because they're just happier and that it it fits better with, with their ways of making progress um, is going to improve. 
Mm. Uh, I like, you know, one of the strange things about the US is that here the people have very, uh, very small amounts of vacation. You know, they get by European standards, which is what I'm used to, they get a very small amount of vacation. And then, you know, in many places, I think they work more rigorously nine to five. I'd like to see some studies. This is just you know, anecdotal evidence, but I suspect Europeans actually work, you know, less rigorously on the clock than Americans, partly because they're just, I think, more relaxed about time and vacation. And, you know, we have a kind of open vacation policy in the company and you kind of have to force people to take time off. It's crazy, you know, but you do, particularly particularly people who've grown up in the US mm. versus, you know, the Europeans in the company, they, they're quite happy to disappear for all of August. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that, that the way we're going, or let's say the hope should be that, well, the hope should be people who don't want to work, you know, what's a dream society? People who don't, don't want to work in, in menial jobs don't have to. Um, but that, that people are happy with what they're doing in their lives. And I think part of that happiness is being productive. This is partly just the way I think we're wired. And so you want to make sure that, that you're getting the best out of people in general, even if there's a singular goal. Uh, there's many different routes to that goal and many different contributions that different types of people can make. And, um, you know, as I think, hopefully we break ourselves out of this, this sort of, you know, 150 years of like, oh, this is the way stuff progress needs to happen. It's a, it's a very old dogma. That's for sure. So the, one of my favorite questions to ask guests, and now that we're approaching the end, if I could grant you the ability to decide what sentence phrase was on a push notification that went out to most of humanity that you know has a smartphone that gets a push notification what what message would you want to send to people in that moment of having their attention <laughs> honestly it was certainly to everyone in the u.s my message would be calm the fuck down people are just so like I don't know, so polarized, you know, whether you're talking like, yeah, politics, but just in general, like everyone is general, yeah. so uptight at the moment. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, yeah. I like that. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> I really like that. Um, is there, is there anything regarding time off and rest that I didn't ask about that you've wanted, wanted to share uh, a thought or? Anything uh, I mean, nothing that, that immediately jumps to mind. You know, mm. I think there's no one size fits all. You should never be mm-hmm. trying to mimic what other people do, but you can certainly learn from, from things that other people do in terms of time off and, you know, mental time off as well as physical time off. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I'm looking forward to the book and, and learning from what other people you know, say is uh, their particular ways of of being more productive by being 
sort of better at taking time off. I think. It's- yeah, there's you know there's a lot of literature around rest. Sorry, a lot of literature around work ethic. And Max and I are just trying to balance yeah. that out by having literature about rest ethic because I think yeah. both feed each other. You know, your quality of time off contributes to the quality of time on when you are focused and when yeah. you're done. And that's kind of our, our larger goal is that everyone is different. Uh, but, you know, if you have a rest ethic, that's a good thing. If you don't have yeah. one, you may be experiencing the symptoms of burnout and yeah. to your yeah. point, not being able to calm the fuck down <laughs> if, you, if you haven't exercised that. How can we support you? Is um, is your is your any of your your project your startup uh is there any there was anything listeners could do to support you you have your book q is for quantum is there any other places you'd want to send people to support you uh no no i think actually the book is a good it's a good way to start just because i would like the discussion about quantum computing to be more interesting than Hmm. uh, you know when a quantum computer is going to crack code <laughs> that, that frankly we don't give a damn about yeah um, so yeah i think you know, getting uh, just a deeper appreciation of how powerful the whole theory of computation is just almost as a like a philosophical understanding of the world and then what quantum computing has brought to that which is yeah i think a significant step well Terry, thank you for all the work you, within that and to have this discussion. And I'm wishing you a slightly more comfortable, but a deeper, interesting experience at Burning Man this year. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Uh, appreciate your time very much. Thank you. Yeah, Take have care. a great day. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. I really appreciate your attention and for listening to this episode. I'm excited to include some of Terry's story in our upcoming book, Time Off. And for more updates about our book, head to timeoffbook.com. And I'd like to ask you for input. If you have ideas on a topic or ideas for a guest that you would like for us to cover, just reach out to us. You can find out how to do so on our website, momoffbook.com. Thank you for listening, and I wish you a totally restful week. Take care.